0: Holy Spirit, speak. What do you have to say to us? And he'll speak. He'll just open our ears to listen. Psalms chapter 11, if you would, guys. I got say it, yes. The season that we're in and it's different. And so I'm just
1: thinking, buckle up. But what it really is the, the armor of We've yeah. to make sure
0: that She was thinking, buckle up. But then she thought, it's really the armor of God. Buckle up with the armor of God. Yeah. Nothing to fear. That buckle up is like a fearful phrase, right? But you're like, no, buckle up. Gird yourselves up. So good. Because of that, let's not go to Psalms 11. Let's go to 1 Samuel 14, guys. I just want to give you a short, just a quick encouragement here. Man, Teresa, you just messed me up with that word. That was a good one. Buckle up. 1 Samuel 14. You guys remember this story. It'll just take a, a few minutes to unpack it here for you. Saul has just become king over Israel. Uh, Saul's got, I can't remember, 3,000 guys, I think, in 13 verse 2. He had 3,000 men uh, with him, and he ended up fighting the Philistines. And he kind of had some victory at the beginning, but then Saul did something really bad to the Philistines. We don't know exactly what it was, but it says he made himself a stench to the Philistines. And so at that point, the Philistines said, the Israelites can't have any blacksmiths in the land of Israel. We're going to take away all their weaponry no swords, no spears, no javelins, because if they get them, they might fight back. And so how many people do you think at this point in chapter 14 had swords in the land of Israel? Two, Saul and Jonathan, his son. They were the only two guys with swords. It's crazy, but it's true. So the Philistines hate Saul because of what he did. They've taken away all their weapons from them. They've surrounded them, and here they are uh, in verse uh, 23. Uh, Now, the detachment of the Philistines had gone out to the pass at Michmash. One day, Jonathan, son of Saul, said to his young armor bearer, come, let's go over to the Philistine outpost on the other side. Now Saul was saying, uh, he didn't tell his father, now Saul was saying on the outskirts of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree in Migron, with him were about 600 men. Where did all the other guys go? Where did the other 2,400 guys? They fled, they hid in holes, or they deserted, they went over to the Philistine army, or they just peaced out, I'm going home because the Philistine army, it says, I think there was like 30,000 chariots and there were men more than the sand on the seashore. It was crazy. They, they were way, 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 way outnumbered, even at 3,000. So 2,400 homeboys head out. Saul's sitting there with 600 guys, no weapons for any of the 600 soldiers except for Saul. He's chilling under a pomegranate tree, trying to figure out what to do next. Jonathan has a sword. He says to his soldier, armor bearer, come with me to the other side. Verse four, on each side of the pass that Jonathan intended to cross to reach the Philistine outpost was a cliff, so it was treacherous. One cliff, verse five, stood to the north, the other to the south. Jonathan said prophetically, verse six, come, let's go over to the outpost of these uncircumcised men. Perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Come on, that's good, isn't it? Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. His armor better in verse 7 says, Do all that you have in mind. Go ahead, I'm with you heart and soul. It's like Navy SEALs. This is just awesome movie here. Jonathan said, come then, we will cross over toward them and let them see us. If they say to us, wait there until we come to you, we'll stay where we are and we won't go up. But if they say, come up to us, we will climb up because that will be our sign ahead of time that the Lord has given them into our hands. So both of them showed themselves to the Philistine outpost. Look, said the Philistines, just like Goliath did. The Hebrews are crawling out of the holes they're hiding in. The men of the outpost shouted to Jonathan and our bearer, come up to us and we'll teach you a lesson, which was the sign prophetically the Lord had given them into their hands. So Jonathan and his armor bearer said to him, climb up after me if the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Jonathan climbed up using his hands and feet with his armor bearer right behind him. They climbed up a cliff, crazy. It's the worst battle plan ever. One sword between them the Philistines fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer followed and killed behind him. In that first attack, Jonathan and his armor bearer killed some 20 men in the area of about half an acre. Cool. Super cool. Then, verse 15, panic struck the whole army those in the camp and field and those in the outpost and raiding parties. And the ground shook because it was a panic sent by God. Saul's lookouts at Gibeah and Benjamin saw the army melting away in all directions. And Saul said to the men who were with him, come on, let's do this religious thing. Let's bring the ark of God. Verse 18, bring the ark of God. Let's see what God's doing because that's what we should do at this time. He missed it. He was constantly out of step with what the Lord was doing. Finally, as the tumult increased in verse 19, Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all his 600 men assembled and went to battle. They found the Philistines in total confusion, striking each other with their swords. Go back with me again real quick. How many swords did Israel have? How many swords did God need? He needed no more than two. He used the Philistine swords against them. He had plenty of swords to work with, plenty. He just had to turn them on each other. This happened over and over in the Old Testament, by the way. Think of the Gideon story. Those Hebrews, look who, look who, because of one man's prophetic act of boldness, Jonathan, one man stood up and I'm prophetically standing before you today as Jonathan, one man standing up as the church saying, we will not fear. Who came out of hiding under the pomegranate tree? Fearful old Saul. The lukewarm church came out from hiding and they went to fight. They stood up and they went to fight. Who else came out? Verse 21, Hebrews who had previously been with the Philistines and had gone up with them to their camp went over to the Israelites. Traitors people who had gone to the other side, people who had renounced the faith and walked away, they came back. When all the Israelites then, in verse 23, who were hidden in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were on the run, they joined the battle in hot pursuit. The third people were those who were hiding. They were like the the preppers. They were like, hide out, just get through to the end. And they came out of their hiding places because of Jonathan's act of prophetic boldness. All three of these different groups of people came out and they fought the Philistines. So verse 23, who saved Israel that day? The Lord. The Lord saved Israel that day. I love this story because I believe now more than ever, we're surrounded in the church by Philistines. It says they were 30,000 chariots, more footmen than you could count on the sands of the sea in the chapter before this. And here we are, surrounded by everything dark we could have, ever have imagined. And it looks like the church is about over. And it looks like, well, this is probably it. Jesus is coming back. And I think he's coming back, by the way. But, but, if I read my Bible, and I do, and I know God, and I do, and you do, I see that God uses times like this to turn the darkest situation into the brightest light. Remember Esther for such a time as this? It looked like evil Haman was just about to get through with his plot and then bam, everything turned on its ear and Haman got hanged from the gallows that he had made for Mordecai. All of Israel was to be wiped out on that day and what happened in that day? They wiped everybody else out. Guys, what if? We're not being set up for the great trial and tribulation that I know is coming someday. What if, because of all the prophecies about revival and all the prayer about revival in the United States, what if there's great kickback right now because of what's about to happen? Can you hear me? What if nobody's saying this? When do you suffer the most warfare, the enemy attack? Anybody want to shout it out? I know when I do. It's right before I have my breakthrough. It's right before the Lord delivers me and changes my mind and breaks through in my circumstances, right? Why wouldn't that be the case for the church? Every revival I've ever read about in modern history, when does it start? In the darkest time of that nation's history. Dark. They're about to collapse. Okay, go with me to Psalms 11. Now I'll get there. Nobody's talking about this. Maybe they are. I'm just not listening to them. I don't know. I'm trying to be quiet right now and just listen to the Lord. But I know the media is not talking about this. Psalms 11. This is David. In the Lord, I take refuge. And then he looks to his big group of friends that are standing there with him. And David says, how then can y'all, y'all well-intentioned friends say to me, flee like a bird to your mountain. For look, the wicked bend their bows. Anybody want to guess who the wicked was that was bending his bow at David at this time? Saul, Saul was the wicked one bending his bow at David. They set their arrows against the strings to shoot from the shadows at the upright in heart. This is his friends talking to him. And then his friends say this, David, when the foundations of Saul's kingdom are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? I was laying in bed a while back and this question came to my mind. When the foundations are being destroyed, which is what's happening right now, what can the righteous do? And I thought, well, what's the answer? I don't remember. I didn't even remember where the scripture was. I had to go look it up. David's friends are saying, flee like a bird to the mountains, David, because Saul and his wicked troops are advancing against you to try to shoot you from the shadows. David, listen to me. When the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do except flee? That's all you can do is flee. End quote. And verse four, David starts talking again. And this is David's response to that question The Lord is in his holy temple, the Lord is on his heavenly throne. Extra points to the person who tells me, what are the two things that God's throne is built on? Righteousness and justice. Anybody think God's throne is being destroyed anytime soon? Any foundations on God's throne being destroyed? No way, Jose. Foundations of culture, maybe, but not God's throne. David says, I'm looking to a throne with foundations that will never be destroyed. Righteousness and justice will always be from the beginning to the end on God's throne. He observes everyone on earth. His eyes examine them or tests them. The Lord examines the righteous, But the wicked, those who love violence, he hates with a passion. On the wicked, he will rain fiery coals and burning sulfur. A scorching wind will be their lot. For the Lord is righteous. He loves justice. And the upright will see his face. So you have the advice of fear coming from David's friends. When the foundations are be destroyed, flee, run away. And you have David's, answer in faith. David's friends' motives were right, but their advice was worldly wisdom, and it was wrong. Listen, advice, even in the church today, well-meaning friends can be totally dead wrong if it's not based on the Scripture. If, if we're listening to advice, even from well-meaning friends that's not interpreted through the lens of Scripture— and we're in in, in big trouble. We have to think about what's happening right now based on what the Bible says. When the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? Lift their eyes to a throne with foundations that will never be destroyed. You know what happens during times like this? We start to get detached from the love of the world, yeah? Like your 401k, your retirement, you start thinking about your house differently, think about your marriage differently, because Paul says what? Those who are married should act like they're not married. Those who use the things of the world as if they're not engrossed in them. Why? Because the present form of this world is passing away. Quickly, right, old people? Sorry. Quick, fast, like a vapor, it's gone. Why would we put roots down here? I said it a few weeks ago. If we're called to be like Abraham and live intent as, so, as intent, as in tents as sojourners, then why would we build foundations with with like a stem wall for our tent? Why would we do that? Why would we go down to bedrock to, to get a nice sturdy foundation for a tent? That would be silly. Because why? We're made to live on the move in a tent. You pull up the little, you got to have some strength to hold the tent there from blowing over, right? But it's just a little bar that's like that long, right? You just put it in the ground. It's time to pack up on Saturday afternoon. You pick it up and go. We're called to live open-handed. The Lord right now is detaching us from the love of the world, and he's examining the righteous, The Lord is testing the righteous. The wicked, those who love violence, he really does hate with a passion. That's the truth. God so loves the world and he hates wickedness. On the wicked, he will rain fiery coals and burning sulfur. The upright will see his face. The Lord is doing something now where he's opening our eyes to see Jesus in a new way. Amen? As we get our eyes off of this world and the things in the world, we're seeing Jesus in a new way. It's just not going to last. Woo! All right. Lord, I pray in Jesus' name that you would do a work of lifting our eyes off of the foundations that are being shaken here. And on to the foundations of your throne. Righteousness and justice. I pray that we like the saints of old would look forward to our heavenly city. With a foundation that's been poured by God. And will never go away. Just if you would, with me for a moment, ask the Lord, wherever it is that your eyes are on the earth right now, that He would expose that. And He would lift your eyes to heaven. Lord, wherever we've got our roots down deep here in Babylon, I pray that you'd forgive us. There's a day coming when we'll have to leave. And I pray, Father, that we would live like sojourners. We would live like exiles, as peculiar people that don't really even belong here. We're in the world, but we're not of it for sure. And wherever we've become knit together, form and fashion with the world, would you forgive us, Lord? I thank you for the separating work you're doing now in Jesus' name. We just ask for more, Lord. We got to spend a couple weeks-ish, week and a half in Colorado. And... uh, the whole time I was there, I kept on feeling in, in, my, in my heart that we needed to get on top of a mountain somewhere, and we got, you know, it's hard to get up there with a ton of little kids, and we had done some hiking and some things like that, but we ended up staying an extra day, and that last day, I said, I really, really feel like I just really want to go up on top of a mountain, so Brad and Hannah, brother-in-law, sister-in-law, said we got a great place to go, so we drove up to the top of Mount Falcon, and then it's about a three-quarter mile hike to get to the peak, and... It was just beautiful, it was, uh, um, obviously Colorado on the mountain is just gorgeous. What I didn't know was when we got up to the top, the reason everybody walks up there is to take a look at something called the Walker Family Ruins. And the Walker Family Ruins is a, basically a castle set on a hill. And it was built a little after the turn of the century by a guy named John Walker, who was a self-made millionaire by 1905. And started several businesses, magazines, all kinds of stuff, diversified and some still going to this day. Very successful and he bought 4,000 acres in this what is now a park area. And he wanted to build the dream home for him, his family, his wife and kids. Family man, great guy, loved his family a lot. And so he hiked up there and staked this place out and found it. And you could see every direction for, I don't know, I'm not exaggerating, but a, like a billion miles or something like that. You could see everywhere. It was gorgeous. And he brings in stonemasons from Italy, and they build this mansion up on a hill. And we saw black and white photographs on the little, the, the little historical sheet out there or whatever. And it was crazy nice. And the stone foundation's still there and the big chimney, and you could still see some of the walls and... It was amazing to look at. And this guy had a picture with his wife and all of his kids out in front of this house during construction that started in 1909. And there's the picture. And he built this house with stonemasons from Italy and all this stuff from 1909 to like 1914. And he finishes the house up on a hill, the perfect place. 24 months later in 1916, his wife dies. And he's, I'm sure, distraught. So he lives there with his kids alone. 24 months later in 1918, lightning hits the top of the house and it burns to the ground. And John Walker leaves Colorado and never comes back again. And now it's called the Walker family ruins because it was ruined. And as I looked at that, I was standing up there and the Holy Spirit spoke something in my heart last week and he said, you'll never get the Garden of Eden here. I got to thinking about the Lord put an angel with a flaming sword in front of the gate to the Garden of Eden to say, that's not going to be here. We will get it back and we have it in the Spirit now but we don't have it physically yet. And I was struck by that because I remember as I got my beautiful six kids and my wife and, you know, thinking about the future and you start thinking about, you know, family dynamics as you go on out and grandkids down the road someday and all that kind of stuff. We all kind of have a tendency like Peter to be like, hey, let's build a tent up here on this mountain. This is really good that we stay here right now. God comes in with the cloud and he's like, listen to my son, Jesus, he's the only one. And then they have to go down off the mountaintop into the demon infested valley where they have to cast a demon out of this young boy. We will not get the garden of Eden here now. The Lord, First Timothy 6, give us, gives us all things richly for our enjoyment. Isn't that so good? We get houses to live in and cars to drive and clothes to wear and families to enjoy it all with. But we all know it's not forever here on this side. We're about to get the Garden of Eden forever. We're about to get our kids forever. We'll never say goodbye at a funeral again, ever. It's gonna be so good. But those who try to find their life here do what? Just slips right through their fingers. But those who lose their life here, they find it in abundance. So sweet to remember that here on this side. Do we try to maintain a standard of living in an environment that is the safest, richest, out of control, blessed environment ever in the history of the earth, but only for the last 80 years? Do we try to maintain that here when the foundations are being shaken? Or do we cast our eyes to another kingdom and say, I belong to that one. My citizenship is not here. It's hard for us in America, making what we make, saving what we save, living where we live. It's hard for John Walker, a millionaire, not to say, let's just gather up on this mountaintop and make something that'll last for the ages. I bet he wished, he, wished, he would have spent the last five years of his life with his wife before she died instead of building that house all day, every day. The Lord has a way of shaking everything that can be shaken so that what is unshakable will remain. And that's what he's doing right now. And I want to encourage you, let the shaking happen. Embrace the cross. Let the Lord take anything away he's wanting to take away. Just take your fists like this, your kids, your family, your career, your finances, your security, and just even if it's one finger tonight, two, Three, just all, just take my fingers off. You know that little kid? Like, come on, come on. Just open up to the Lord. You take whatever you want to take, it's all yours anyway. I don't have a breath without you. When the foundations are being destroyed, what should the righteous do? The righteous are being tested right now. The righteous at the end of Psalms 11 will see his face. The Lord's revealing himself and his kingdom in a new way. Isn't that good? It's what we've been praying for. It just comes in a way we don't really like. Philistines surrounding the church right now, guys. I was at the first uh, meeting for the Friday night service in Wichita a month or month and a half ago, and everybody was gathered up praying, and we were worshiping, and it was just a powerful deal, like a release into the heavenly realms about the Lord's worthiness, that he will get every nation, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. And I saw a vision when I was there. I saw the church, like in the middle of America, being surrounded by enemies, and I saw the devil's head turn and look at the group that was praying on Friday night. He moved his attention from here to the group that was praying. Anyone who desires to live a righteous life in Christ Jesus will be what? Persecuted. Promise. I promise. Be sure to read the fine print. You sign up for Jesus, you sign up for a life of suffering because Jesus was a man of suffering. We will be persecuted. The time is coming. What do we do about that? Before we are, what if there's a great revival coming, a great in-gathering? Don't lose heart. Don't fear persecution. Say yes, like Jonathan did in the Old Testament. I got one sword and that's all because 30,000 Philistines have all their swords and God can turn each one of them on each other. This is a declaration of war that we're doing and I'll finish with this. Um, I saw a video of someone being asked to kneel in force, being forced to kneel. And then after they kneeled, they were asked to speak what this person wanted them to speak. And as I watched this, I thought, that is a sign of total and complete submission and humiliation. So can you imagine if you were asked to bow down before an enemy of yours and say that they were the ruler of your life. Can you imagine that? And then if you bowed, can you imagine the total crushing of your spirit to have them say, now speak it out loud. You've knelt down in front of me, now say it out loud. I'm the ruler of your life. Can you imagine what, what has to happen in your heart to get that? Like that, that's, a, that's an act of violence to do that. I was thinking about that the other day and I thought, what am I praying for here that every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that Jesus is Lord? I'm praying for an act of violence to be done on the planet. I'm praying for one kingdom to come in and crush another kingdom. Right? I think that's what I'm praying. Jesus will not come back in a manger. He'll come back with a sword coming out of his mouth. And there'll be so much blood, it'll be up to his thigh. It'll be up on his robe. The, his, he's not coming back like a little quiet baby. He's coming back as the lion of the tribe of Judah. And people will be crying out, save us from the wrath of the one who sits on the throne and of the lamb. My good golly, what am I thinking is about to happen here? An invasion is about to happen. <laughs> This is not time for nice neat church services. This is not a time to keep the form and function of Christianity together. You guys can take a nap after you leave here tonight because I feel passionate about this. This is a time to proclaim the truth. Jesus is coming back. Do you know what that means? You'll be forced to kneel atheist. You'll be forced to confess he's Lord. I will not, absolutely not. Yes, you will. It's going to be so incredibly bad for you. When he comes back, you're going to groan. And I'll be running towards him to embrace him. But there will be a groaning. Gosh, I was not planning on doing any of this tonight. I have a completely different sermon on this. Completely different sermon. Listen to me. This is what the Lord's just spilling out for my emotional kind of crazy. I'm just doing this, guys. Don't hear me. Hear the Lord in this. He's coming back soon. He's coming back so soon. It's not time to play nice with our neighbors and our coworkers in terms of just, oh, I don't want to offend them with Jesus. They're about to be offended with Jesus and then it'll be too late. Please don't dabble around with sin. Please Please, for on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming back. Don't act like the world. Don't be on their side. (sighs) Lord, I pray anything and everything that I said here tonight that was from you, let it remain. I pray for an awakening an awakening for all of us to understand what's about to happen. The breaking of the eastern sky with lightning. The lion of the tribe of Judah roaring, coming back with power. Christ was crucified in weakness, but he lives by the power of God. I pray that you would lift powerlessness and weakness off of your people, off of us, off of me, Speak through us. I pray that niceties would be a thing of the past and we would speak the truth in love because we care. Because our eyes have been opened to see the king in his glory. As Isaiah said, I'm undone. I've seen the king. I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm done for. Give us revelation of Jesus. Give us revelation of Jesus. Oh God, open our eyes. Set us free from the love of this world. Set us free from building our kingdoms here, God. I thank you for the year of the Lord's favor, the door that's still open. We know it won't be open very much longer. We know Noah's Ark, that door is open only for a certain period of time. And then it's shut when the rains come. So I pray that you would fill us with the Holy Spirit and boldness to proclaim the gospel. Pray for lives of purity. I pray for those in here struggling with sin. Pray for your fire tonight to burn away. Just ask him if you would, Lord, come burn away. Any dross, any chaff right now, burn it away, God, with your fire. Revive your church, God. I want to ask you guys, if you would, to consider going home tonight not because I said so, but because I feel like the Lord wants to deal with us on this issue of the love of the world and a complete lack of understanding about his soon and imminent return. And I want to ask you guys, if you would consider going home tonight And for tonight, not turning on the TV, not turning on a movie, but just giving him this evening set apart for prayer, for reflection. Only a couple hours before you go to bed anyway. To ask him to deal with you however he needs to deal with you with a love of the world, with one foot in and one foot out, riding the fence. Ask him to reveal the imminent return. I will not be checking up with you to see if you did this, but I'm asking you to do this. I believe the Lord has much for each one of you that will say yes to that. Bless you guys. Can we stand together? Hey, Joanne, why don't you come up here and close us up in prayer, will you, sister?
1: I said if Jonathan asked if anybody had anything, I was going to read this, so I'm going to take this as, does anybody have anything? Psalm 87 says, His foundation is in the holy mountains. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the other dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things are spoken about you, O city of God. Yes, Lord. Lord, you love Zion. You love your city. You love your people. You love these people. You are for us, not against us, God, and as the days get darker, help us to lift up our eyes from where our help comes. Lord, you're there to help. You're right there waiting for us to turn our eyes to heaven and hear what you have to say to us, Lord. You will help us. You were a very present help in time of need, God, and we just thank you tonight, Jesus, that you're with us and that you are a prayer away, Lord. And we just pray tonight for the foundation in every life in this room, the foundation of faith in Jesus. We have put our faith in your death on our behalf. If anybody in this room hasn't, I pray tonight is the night God, and that we would stake our lives on what you did 2,000 years ago, that we are in. We are both feet in. The world has nothing for us. It's all Jesus. For me to live as Christ and to die is gain, Lord, I pray this for your people in this place tonight, that this would be our heart. And we thank you that by your Holy Spirit, by your grace, it's given freely. All we have to do is ask. So we thank you, Father. We thank you. I bless my brothers and sisters here in the name, the mighty name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ, amen.